chapter 9. If you're ready to dive into God's word, would you say amen? amen? If you have a Bible, Matthew chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a Bible in the seat back in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible, that Bible is our gift to you. But Matthew chapter 9, let's start reading in verse number 9. The Bible says this, and as Jesus passed forth from thence, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom. And he saith unto him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. And it came to pass as Jesus sat at meat in the house. Behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto his disciples, why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? But when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, they that behold need not a physician, but they that are sick. But go ye and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. For I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Today, for a few minutes, I'd like to speak to this subject, breaking bread. Breaking bread. Let's have a word of prayer together this morning. Father, thank you so much for this day that you've given us. And God, thank you for the work that you're doing in our church. And God, we don't want to take it for granted. God, thank you for the lives that are being changed and the souls that are being saved. Lord, thank you for what you did in our first service. And Lord, I pray that you would speak to us right now uh, through your word in a powerful way here at the 10 o'clock service. God, so many people have come this morning from different backgrounds and different experiences and different educations. But God, this morning we want to unite around the name of Jesus. And Lord, we want to surrender to your word today. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us uh, eyes to see and ears to hear. And Lord, I pray that we would be able to apply this uh, text to our lives in a specific, tangible way today. We love you. In Jesus' name, and everybody said this morning, Amen. how many of you have ever had a very memorable meal? A memorable meal. And I can think back on my life and think of some memorable meals. And uh, I remember when Katie and I first got married on our honeymoon, I wanted to take her to a very fancy dinner. And I wanted to take her someplace that would kind of impress her early on in our marriage. And so I made a reservation for the nicest steakhouse that I could find. And I was looking forward to that meal at the end of our trip. The only problem is on our honeymoon, I was running out of money. And I did not realize how much these things cost. And so I was kind of learning as I went. And I was wondering, you know, should we cancel the reservation? But I thought, you know, we're going to make this memory. We're going to go and have this steak dinner. And so we went and uh, we showed up and uh, it was an awesome experience. I started looking at the menu and I was like, man, these prices are astronomical. I did not realize how much this was going to be. And so I'm trying to drop some hints to Katie, like, you know, maybe we should just share a meal. You know, I'll just have water. Water's fine, you know, and uh, trying to drop some hints. And we ended up having a great meal and it was so much food and it was so much bread and appetizers that, uh, that I ended up being so full that I didn't finish all of my steak, but I was completely satisfied, and, and uh, we were getting ready to pay the bill, and the manager came out, and he came to me, and he said, sir, I am so sorry that the steak was not prepared to your liking, and I said, no, no, don't worry about it. I said, I was just very full, and he said, no, I insist. The meal is on the house, and uh, you don't have to worry about it, and I knew early on in our marriage, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. And I thought since then, you know, maybe I should try that trick down the road, and I haven't, but 
And uh, that was such a blessing in that moment, and uh, certainly a memorable meal for Katie and myself. We come to Matthew chapter 9, and we find what would be one of the most memorable meals in the ministry of Jesus. This was certainly a meal that would have turned some heads, uh, certainly a meal that would have been scandalous in the eyes of the first century reader. Jesus is sharing this meal with, with unlikely people, and I think it's interesting and fascinating how much of Jesus' ministry he spent around the table. And often he would have these intimate and personal and powerful conversations at the table. And I was thinking about this this week. Uh, have you ever stopped to consider how much of our lives revolve around a table? Yes, yes, exactly. And uh, how many of you would say that you are a foodie today? A foodie, anybody like that? Uh, Katie and I were having this debate. Some people are more interested when they go to a restaurant in strictly the taste people are more interested in the overall experience and atmosphere. How many of you would say, I'm strictly interested in taste? How many of you, that would be your category? How many of you would say, I'm more interested in the overall experience and atmosphere, right? And so Kate and I were having this uh, conversation, but Jesus would, uh, would often have these meals around a table, and so much of our lives are spent around the table. And this morning, I brought with me uh, something that is special to our family, and that is our bench in our kitchen table. And uh, this is the bench in our home, and, uh, and uh, it's not much to look at. You can see kind of uh, some of our youngest daughter Blakely's artwork that she colored all over the bench here on the bottom. But, you know, uh, we've had a lot of special uh, memories uh, at this bench and at this table. This bench is significant to us because this was the bench that Katie uh, grew up with in her home in Seattle, Washington. And so it was handed down to us, and so now we have it. And I was thinking this week of just how many different memories that we've had at this bench and at this table. And uh, uh, so many Christmas Eve dinners and Thanksgiving meals and birthday parties and moments of discipline at the table with the kids and uh, many uh, spiritual conversations at the table. Uh, there's been couples that have prayed to accept Christ on this bench and couples that have been discipled on this bench and, and uh, so many uh, meaningful conversations. You know, the reality is many of life's most meaningful conversations, if you think about it, take place around the table. Many of the most important conversations that you'll ever have take place at the table, in the intimacy and the privacy of your own home. And so I think it's so fascinating that Jesus, when he wanted to communicate a powerful truth, he chose to communicate that powerful truth while breaking bread, uh, while showing up to the table. And so Jesus spent so much of his time uh, around the table having these conversations, and he's showing us uh, uh, some things that really matter in life. In fact, uh, the Gospel of Luke in chapter 7 says this, Luke seven thirty four: The Son of Man is come eating and drinking. Uh, this was the general observation about Jesus. The Son of Man was a term of, of deity. It was a messianic term, uh, speaking of uh, the Messiah, the one that would come. The Son of Man is come eating and drinking. It's been observed in Luke's gospel that Jesus was either at a meal, going to a meal, or coming from a meal. And it wasn't because of what was on the menu. It was because of what was on the heart of Jesus. And what's always on the heart of Jesus is people. And so Jesus wanted to infiltrate the culture and have these meaningful conversations. Now, because Jesus was intensely focused on his mission, and because he was always around the table, uh, this uh, spurred up and stirred up some criticism. In fact, the rest of that verse in Luke 7, 34 says this, The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And you say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a wine-bibber, and a friend of publicans and sinners. They said, look at this man. He's a friend of publican and sinners. Now, uh, make no mistake about it. That was not a compliment. 
Uh, that was not something nice to be said. In fact, if you were to think of the most vulgar and the most derogatory term that you could call someone in the first century, if you really wanted to have an insult and you really wanted to make it sting in the first century, you would call someone a friend of sinners. And so they looked at Jesus and they said, look at what he's doing. Look at what, who, who he's associating with. He's a friend of sinners. Rabbis, teachers of the law, they would never associate with a sinner. In fact, rabbis used to say, don't even go near a sinner, not even to teach him the law. Keep your distance. And so when Jesus uh, gathered around the table, he was certainly uh, turning some heads, and they associated him uh, in this environment. And because of this, they rejected him. The Bible says that he came unto his own, and his own what? Received him not. They rejected him. Think about this. They rejected Jesus because he wasn't religious enough for them. He wasn't judgmental enough for them. He wasn't separated enough for them, and so they rejected him. Think about this. If Jesus were to come physically to America today in our culture, we would reject him too, but for very different reasons. In our culture today, Jesus would be way too religious. He would be way too demanding. Uh, he, he would be uh, way too moral. See, we live in a culture that is secular and immoral, but in the first century, they lived in a very religious and very moral uh, culture. And so two completely different perspectives that we have to understand as we approach Matthew chapter 9, because Matthew chapter 9 is a widely misunderstood passage. Uh, many people have fallen into error because of this uh, passage here, but I believe that it's in this passage, in this text, these short few verses, that Jesus is revealing his heart for people. He's revealing his purpose and his mission. The Bible says that the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. And so as we examine these few verses, what I'd like to do is just give us three ways that we can reflect the heart of Jesus. Would that be okay today? Uh, three ways that we can reflect the heart of Jesus, if you're taking notes, say number one is this. We have to examine the beauty of grace. Examine the beauty of grace. Let's pick up our text in verse number nine. If you're with me today, would you say amen? amen? It says this, And as Jesus passed forth from thence, he was traveling through the region of Galilee. He had just healed a crippled man. Jesus would often teach in outdoor settings because the crowds would grow large. And so Jesus is walking, he's teaching. And it says in verse number 9, And he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom. And he said unto him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. Now, this is a familiar passage. We are not unfamiliar with this setting. Jesus comes and he gives uh, a simple command, follow me. But this simple command in the first century would have been shocking. And it would have been shocking for three reasons. First, because of the occupation of Matthew. Did you notice that the Bible said in verse number 9 that he was sitting at the receipt of the custom? This would have been a checkpoint that along the road that you were required to stop at to pay uh, taxes. This was kind of like the original toll road, right? That you would have to kind of go and, and pay a tax before you could travel on. And so Matthew was a publican, the Bible says. A publican is someone that dealt with public funds, public money. Uh, he was a publican. At this time in history, Rome dominated and ruled the known world. And the Jewish people hated the Romans because the Romans treated the Jewish people unfairly and they would tax them relentlessly. If you read about all of the taxes that were imposed and encumbered upon the Jewish people in the first century, it would shock you. There was an income tax, there was sales tax, there was a poll tax, there was animal tax, a transfer tax, road tax, all kinds of taxes. And so because of this, the tax collector, collectors in particular uh, were hated. Uh, they were seen as the worst of the worst because they were liars, they were thieves. And, uh, and it wasn't just about the money 
for a tax collector, the reason why they hated them. It was about the loyalty. See, if you were a Jewish tax collector, what that meant was you turned your back on your own people, that you were a traitor to your own people, that you rejected your parents, that you rejected your upbringing, that you didn't care what anybody thought. All you were concerned about was making a dollar. And so because of this, uh, the tax collectors were universally hated and they were despised. In fact, we get a glimpse into the hatred in Luke's gospel in Luke 18 verse number 11. It says this, talking about a Pharisee that was praying. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. This is Luke 18, 11. God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. You see how all of a sudden in the prayer, it got personal? Can you imagine if we prayed that today? Welcome to church today. Let's have a word of prayer as we get started. God, thank you so much that uh, I am not an extortioner. God, thank you that I'm not a murderer or an adulterer. And God, thank you I'm not like this publican right here. And uh, Daniel, I don't know why I pointed to you. I'm sorry. But can you imagine if that was... Uh, the prayer in church. Lord, thank you so much that I'm not like this person. You can see the hatred uh, for these tax collectors. You can see the vitriol that was just constantly spurring within him towards someone like Matthew. Now, make no mistake about it. Matthew was a wealthy individual. Uh, Matthew made a lot of money. He was financially rich, but relationally and spiritually, he was poor. Because he burned every bridge that he had. All he was concerned about was making money. All he was concerned about was his own welfare, his own success. Have you noticed in our culture today that so many people are caught up in their own success and they are caught up in in their own uh, career, they're caught up in their own uh, environment and trying to pursue happiness uh, in their own life that they end up burning so many bridges along the way? I was reading an interesting story not too long ago. It was about a pastor that was born in the 1800s, and uh, his name was Clovis Chapel, and uh, no relation to me, unfortunately, but uh, he uh, was writing this story, and I thought it was interesting about these two boats that were uh, traveling on the Mississippi River, and they were traveling along, and as they were traveling along, kind of slowly, they started to argue with one another, and they started to challenge each other about which boat was faster, and so as they were going along, they decided to race one another. And so they started to race one another down the Mississippi River. And one boat started to kind of fall behind. And one of the sailors realized that they didn't have enough fuel for the race. Uh, they had enough fuel for the journey, but not to, to race. They were uh, burning fuel too quickly. And so what one of the sailors decided to do was take some of the cargo that was on the ship and throw it in the furnace. And they discovered that the cargo would burn just as well as the coal. And so they were just throwing their cargo in there. And they ended up winning the race. But when they got to their destination, they didn't have any of their cargo. And so here is the idea that you can be successful in your career. You can be successful in your ministry. But here's the question. At what cost? Will it cost you your marriage? Will it cost you your joy? Will it cost you your integrity? Will it cost you your relationship with your children? Can I encourage you today? Don't burn the cargo to win the race. That's why Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. Does anybody believe today that we ought to seek first the kingdom of God? And if we continue to seek first the kingdom of God, he will take care of us in every area of life. And this is exactly what Matthew was doing. He burned every relationship. He burned every bridge. He burned every ounce of integrity because he was pursuing his own desires and his own ambition. This was his occupation. But then I want you to see not only his occupation, I want you to see his opportunity. Did you notice in verse number 9 that Jesus went to him and he said to Matthew, follow me. Now, we are familiar with this command. This was a simple command to follow Jesus. But you need to know this. When Jesus said, follow me, a rabbi would never say this. This was something that a rabbi would not say. A rabbi or a teacher would never say, follow me. A rabbi or a teacher would always say, follow God. 
You need to follow God. A rabbi would always point the people to God. But Jesus comes along and he doesn't say follow God. He says, follow me. And the reason Jesus says follow me is because Jesus was not merely a rabbi. And Jesus was not merely a good teacher. He was not merely a good prophet. Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is exactly who he says he is. Jesus is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Uh, We bow at the name of Jesus. And so Jesus said, and he had the authority to say, follow me. But why did Jesus say, follow me, to Matthew? I mean, it would almost make sense why Jesus, in some ways, uh, that we look back in our Western uh, culture and mindset, why he chose uh, the fishermen, Peter, James, and John, James and John, uh, the sons of Zebedee. And uh, it might make sense to us why he called them, but why would he choose to call Matthew, this person that was despised by his own family, despised by his own culture, that he was hated amongst uh, all of his influences. And Jesus said to Matthew, I want you, despite of your past, I want you to follow me. There's only one word that adequately describes this scene. And that word is grace. (laughs) It is the beautiful, matchless, wonderful grace of God. Can I remind you today that God calls us not because of our own greatness, but he calls us because of his grace. It's not about what we bring to the table. It's about what he brings to the table. And Jesus brings love to the table. He brings kindness to the table. He brings mercy to the table. He brings grace to the table. Aren't you thankful for all that God brings to the table? And and so uh, he calls out to Matthew in his grace and he says, follow me. You know, uh, A.W. Tozer talking about grace, uh, he said this, he said, grace is the good pleasure of God that inclines him to bestow benefits upon the undeserving. It's used to us sinful men is to save us and make us sit together in heavenly places to demonstrate to the ages the exceeding riches of God's kindness to us in Christ Jesus. The fact that God would forgive us in spite of all the dumb things that we've ever done, all the dumb things that we will do, that his grace is sufficient and available to us is amazing. It's astounding. It's beautiful. I love that when Jesus looked at Matthew, he didn't see him for who he was. He saw him for who he could be in Christ. He didn't see him as just a a thief, a lying tax collector. He saw him as an apostle that would write the gospel of Matthew that we're studying this morning. See, when we see a hurting person, Jesus sees the hidden potential. He he sees that all that's wrapped up in that individual. And so his occupation was a tax collector, a publican. Uh, His opportunity was to follow Jesus. And then I want you to see his obedience. Notice the end of verse number nine. Everybody still tracking with me this morning? Notice verse number nine, it says this. And Jesus passed forth from thence, and he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of the custom. And he said unto him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. The obedience, the submission of Matthew, that he rose up and he followed Jesus. This was a, a great decision. This was um, an all-out act of surrender. You know, Matthew's gospel doesn't tell us this because Matthew was writing this, and I believe that he's writing from a place of humility, so he doesn't include all the detail. But if you study the same story in the gospel of Luke, Luke tells us specifically that Matthew left everything that he had to follow Jesus. He left it all. Matthew doesn't include that detail because Matthew is not interested in being the hero of his own story, which, by the way, I think is a good lesson for us because often we are very interested in being the hero of our own story. We're very interested in tooting our own horn. We're very interested in getting the, ac- uh, the accolades and the uh, affirmation that we desire in life. But, you know, Proverbs says this in Proverbs 27, verse 2, Let another man praise thee, and not thine own mouth, a stranger and not thine own lips. And so this is what Matthew is doing. He is, he is coming from a place of humility, uh, but he arose and he followed him. Now, this was different than the call to the fishermen 
to follow Jesus? Because the reality is a fisherman could go back to his occupation if he so desired. In fact, think about it. Uh, in John chapter 21, Peter, when he was uncertain of what to do after the death and crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, what did Peter do in John 21? He went fishing again. So a fisherman could go back fishing if he wanted. A tax collector could never go back to that occupation. A tax, collector, a tax collector did not even have that as an option. And so Matthew had to stay with commitment. I have decided to follow Jesus, and there is no turning back. This was an all-out act of surrender. He gave up everything that he had. But please hear me. Don't feel sorry for him. Don't feel sorry for him that he gave up everything that he had, but because what he had to gain was so much more than what he gave up. He might have lost some friends, but what he found was freedom in Christ. He might have lost a high-paying job, but what he found was a purpose for his life. He might have lost a sense of security, but he found salvation for his soul. Hey, whatever we have to give up to follow Jesus is nothing compared to what we have to gain when we decide to follow Jesus. And so this is all because of the beautiful, matchless grace of God that he bestowed upon Matthew and that he bestows upon us. And so uh, we first examine the beauty of God's grace. But that leads us to our second thought today, and that's this. Number two, we have to expand the table. So we examine God's grace and recognize how loving and undeserving, how undeserving we are and how loving God is. And then we have to expand the table. I want you to notice verse number 10. It says this. And it came to pass as Jesus sat at meat in the house, Behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And so I love this. Verse number nine, follow me. Verse number 10, we are immediately in Matthew's house with Jesus, with all the sinners, with all the publicans. Now we know it's Matthew's house because specifically in Luke's gospel, it says they sat and had a meal in uh, Matthew's house. Uh, they are there in Matthew's house, and they are uh, having this dinner party together. Matthew was being hospitable, and he invites all of his friends over. I remember growing up, I grew up in a pastor's home, and my parents always had people uh, uh, together in the house. We always had company. My parents were very hospitable, and I would, I would show up sometimes at home, and I didn't even know we were having company. There'd just be people uh, in our home, and one time I, I came home, and I was, I was tired, and there were some people over there, and I went to my room, and I shut the door behind me, and I sat down on the bed, and I sat down on the bed, and I heard the toilet flush in my room. And I thought, I have no idea who's in there, so I'm going to leave and make them feel more comfortable in my room. And, uh, and uh, I've had my fair share of awkward uh, company. How many of you have ever had some awkward company or an awkward dinner party, right? Well, this scene certainly would have been awkward for some people. Jesus here is breaking bread with an unlikely crowd. He's sitting here with Matthew, the tax collector. And uh, this would have been seen as something scandalous. In fact, most commentators call this passage in Matthew 9, verses 9 through 13, a scandal of grace. This was something that was scant. Can you believe? Can you see? Have you heard? Did you see? Uh, this was something that was scandalous. He's surrounded by uh, his friends. But the purpose of Matthew was very clear. The grace of God that came to him, he wanted others to experience that as well. And see, this is what grace does. Grace always motivates us to action. Uh, grace always propels us to action. Matthew thought, man, uh, uh, God's grace has come to me. Jesus has shown me love, and he's invited me to follow him. I want my friends to experience this as well. And so what is he doing? He's expanding the table. See, when Jesus showed up, and all of Matthew's friends and all the worldly publicans and sinners were sitting at the table, Jesus didn't turn to his disciples and say, man, we need better security. He turned to his disciples and said, we need a bigger table. We need to expand the table and make room for more. And so Matthew invites his friends over. Now, I love that Matthew, he, he might have thought, you know, they're not going to come and hear a sermon, but they'll come to a supper. They'll come to the dinner table. 
Uh, this is why at church sometimes we'll have outreach events, we'll have bounce houses or the Kona ice truck. And uh, this is not just so that we can just enjoy ourselves, although I hope we do that. Uh, these things are tools that we can have to invite others to the table uh, to share the good news of the gospel. And that was the heart of Matthew, that he wanted the grace that came to him uh, to go through him because he really understood that grace always leads to change. Grace leads to... See, everybody with me today? See, we have a misunderstanding often in Christian culture about grace. We have a misunderstanding about what, what grace really means. Uh, I remember several years ago, I was talking with uh, my daughter Liv. I think she was about three years old, and I was teaching her and having a conversation with her about grace, and she was in trouble uh, in her room. She was laying in her bed, and uh, she did something she wasn't supposed to do, and so I was describing to her grace, and I said, Liv, uh, grace is undeserved favor, that even when you don't deserve it, even when we've done wrong, that, that God still wants to bless us and his grace, and I'm trying to teach her about grace, and she was in trouble, and so I said, Liv, do you want grace right now? And she said, yes, I want grace. And so I said, okay, I love you. I forgive you. Uh, I'll see you in the morning. And I said goodnight, and I left the room, and I walked out. And when I walked out, I shut the door, and I heard uh, Liv say, Dad, I want grace. And I was thinking, I, I thought I could explain this pretty clearly, but, and I kind of just ignored it for a second. And she said, Dad, I want grace. And I was thinking, I already gave you grace. And so I walked back in the room, and, uh, and she was pointing, and apparently she had an American girl baby doll named Grace. And the whole time that I was talking about grace, she thought that I was going to give her her baby doll. And she was extremely disappointed when she didn't have grace. And so uh, there was definitely a misunderstanding in that moment about grace. So many people today are confused about grace. And they think that the grace of God means that we can live however we want. If God is going to just forgive me, and if his grace is available then let me just do whatever it is that I please, and God's going to forgive me, and his grace is available. But we have to remember this. The Bible says in Romans chapter 6, verse number 1, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Can I tell you that grace is not a license to sin? But that grace is the greatest motivator to live for Jesus. That grace is the greatest motivator to do more for Jesus. And that's exactly what we see taking place in the life of Matthew. He said, man, God has changed my life. And I want others to experience that as well. That was the purpose of Matthew. But then at the table, uh, sitting at the table, we see the purpose of Jesus. Uh, the picture of Jesus was he was showing us what it looks like to live in the world, not be of the world. Uh, that Jesus was uh, surrounding himself with lost people. That he was surrounding himself, living on mission uh, to uh, share the good news of the kingdom, to share uh, how you can have a home in heaven and a relationship with God. Jesus was living on mission. Can I remind you, the Bible says this in Luke chapter 14, verse 23. And the Lord said unto the servant, go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. Please hear me today. At Rock Hill Church, we want to be a place that is always willing to expand the table that's always willing to make room for more, yes, to expand the table. Uh, that might mean adding an additional service. Yeah. That might mean changing our schedule. That might mean getting out of our comfort zone. That might be, Lord willing, purchasing a new building. But we ought always to be a place that is making room for more, that are bringing more people to the table so they can experience the life-giving and life-changing message of Jesus Christ. We've got to expand the table. I wonder in your life personally, what would this look like to expand the table? Maybe it means inviting your neighbor over for a meal. Maybe it means going to that neighborhood party that you really don't want to go to. 
Maybe it means taking someone out at work. Maybe it means starting discipleship, starting a small group. Uh, I, I don't know what God would have you do, but how would God have you expand the table? We need to examine the grace of God, the beauty of his grace, but then we expand the table. And this leads us to our third thought today. Number three, if you're taking notes, once we expand the table, then we expect transformation. We have to understand grace, that God loves us in spite of us, that God wants to call us in spite of us. We expand the table, make room for more, but then we expect transformation. Several months ago during the school year, I got an email from my son Luke's teacher. And Luke, he is uh, going into third grade this year, but his teacher uh, said that he was in a little bit of trouble because he kept on wanting to make his friends laugh in class. And apparently he had all the jokes and he was just making everybody laugh and, and uh, he was not supposed to be doing that in class. And so I got the email and I... I came home and I said, Luke, come, come talk with me. We went outside and I was trying to have a heart to heart with him, you know, <laughs> and as much as you can, uh, you know, with an eight-year-old. And I, I went out and I said, Luke, I said, you know, um, I know it's fun to make people laugh, but there's a time and place for that. And uh, I said, you know, there's time to be serious. And when you're in the classroom, you need to be serious. That's not the time to be making people laugh. And I looked at him. I said, do you understand? And he kind of hesitated for a second. He said, all he said was, Dad, that's going to be a challenge. <laughs> he just thought, you know, I'm just being honest with you. Sometimes I got a joke and I got to let it out. You know, it's going to be a challenge. It's going to be a challenge, Dad. You know, change, real change, change is challenging. Uh, change is not always easy. But here's the beauty of the gospel. The beauty of the gospel is that the gospel is not about information. The gospel is not about inspiration. The gospel is about transformation. <laughs> That even when we can't change, that he can change us from the inside out. Uh, that behold, all things are become new. And Jesus is going to make this abundantly clear in this passage that is widely misunderstood uh, about the transformation that takes place when we uh, receive the gospel. I want you to notice verse number 11 today. Notice the accusation about Jesus. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto his disciples, by the way, it's interesting that they had to say it to the disciples. They didn't have enough courage to confront Jesus himself. So they said to his disciples, they said in verse number 11, Why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? What is, what is he doing? These were the Pharisees. Now, we might know in our culture today the Pharisees as hypocritical, and sometimes we'll, we'll use the term pharisaical. But in the first century, the Pharisees were the religious elite. They were the ones that knew the law. And they were so extreme in trying to carry out the law from an outward perspective. In fact, there was a group in the first century, they were called the blind and bleeding Pharisees. And the blind and bleeding Pharisees, what they would do is in certain settings, in certain environments, they would literally put a blindfold on and they, they didn't want to see because they said, if I look at a woman, I might have lust in my heart. So I'm going to have the blindfold on. And they ended up tripping over things and bruising themselves and bleeding. And so they were called the blind and bleeding Pharisees. This is how much they try from an external perspective to get it all right. And so these Pharisees look at Jesus at this table, and this is scandalous. How could he be eating? And the connotation in the Greek, it's, it's, it's uh, continuing. Uh, essentially what they were saying is he's always doing this. Uh, and the implication was he's sinning too. They were trying to accuse Jesus of being a sinner in this environment. But I think it's important for us to remember today that the Bible says in 1 Peter 2, 2, speaking of Jesus, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. 1 Peter 1.19, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. Aren't you thankful for the impeccability, the perfection of Jesus Christ that he never one time sinned? He was tempted as in all points as we are, and yet he was 
without sin. And so he was accused of this, but I want you to see his answer. Now, his answer is key, and please don't miss this, because this is what so many people misunderstand about this passage. Is everybody still with me? We have to understand verse number 12. Notice it. But when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, They that be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. Now, so many people want to use this passage to justify their behavior or to justify a lifestyle and say, well, Jesus spent time with publicans and sinners, and Jesus was a friend of sinners, and people love to quote verse number 11, but often we don't love to quote verse number 12. Because Jesus stated his purpose while he was with them, they that be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. Imagine being at the table that day. You're sitting at the table with Jesus and all the sinners and the publicans, which, by the way, I love in first century culture how they would eat. They would actually just kind of all lounge and recline in chairs. That's how they would eat. They would all kind of just put their feet up and they would spend a long time. I think we should bring that back to our culture today, that we just kind of get in a lazy boy and just eat all day long. And, uh, and so imagine the scene. They're kind of just hanging out. They're eating. They're having a great time. By the way, I think it's important to recognize and to note that people actually wanted to be with Jesus, that, that the sinners were comfortable with Jesus. They enjoyed being, they, they loved spending time with him. The Pharisees, they observe this. Why is your master always eating and drinking with, with sinners? And Jesus hears that. And he says, they that behold need not a physician. And then he says, I'm in here. You're out there. I'm in here with the sick people. Imagine being one of those publicans that day. And they look at each other when Jesus said that. He's in here with the sick people. Is he talking about us? Like we're the sick people? See, Jesus was unconditional in his love but he was unashamed of the truth. And yes, he was a friend of sinners, but when he was in that environment, he was speaking the truth in love. Don't ever forget that balance. Some people are truth people, some people are love people, but God has called us to be both. Some people err on the side of love. They're not going to communicate the truth. Some people want to beat you over the head with the truth. They're not going to love you, but we are called to speak the truth in love. And so Jesus was not ashamed of his message. He said, they that behold need not a physician. I'm here for the sick. And notice what he says in verse 13. But go ye and learn. You've got some learning to I love how Jesus says it. You've got some learning to do. Remember, he was speaking to the Pharisees. These were the experts. These were the, the most knowledgeable people in all the land. They knew everything. And Jesus is like, you've got some learning to do. Go ye and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. Here he's, he's quoting an Old Testament passage. Hosea chapter 6, verse number 6. You can look it up later if you want, where he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And what he's saying is, Jesus is saying, I prefer mercy and compassion over an empty religious ritual of sacrifice. He's saying, he's saying to the Pharisees, you are very religious and you know all the rituals, but you don't have mercy. You don't have compassion. That's what you need to learn. Go and learn some mercy. Go and look up Hosea 6.6, 6, Jesus says. You know the law so well, you know the scripture. Remember what the prophet Hosea said. But then he says this, for I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Yes, Jesus will reach us right where we're at, but he loves us too much to leave us right where we're at. He has come to call sinners to repentance. The word repentance means a complete change of mind. It's not remorse. It's not just, oh, I feel bad. No, it's, hey, I'm going one direction and I repent. I'm going another uh, direction. Jesus says, I am come to call sinners to repentance. There's transformation that takes place. Romans chapter 12, verse number two says this, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed. Everybody say transformed. Transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And so we are not to conform to the world and acquiesce to the culture, 
but we are to be transformed by the power of the gospel that only Jesus can do. Now, when it comes to the culture around us, we only have three options. Are you interested today in what those three options are? There's only three options. When it comes to the culture around us, number one, option one, is we can isolate from the culture. We can say, man, there's a lot of bad people out there. There's a lot of wickedness in our world today. And so I'm just going to get as far away as I can. I'm going to move to Lancaster, Pennsylvania in the Amish community. And I'm going to get a house there. And I'm just going to stay away from everybody. I'm going to get a cabin up in the woods. I'm going to hunker down. I'm going to have my emergency preparedness kit. And I'm not going to talk to anyone. Okay, you can isolate from the culture. The other option is you can go on the other extreme and you can imitate the culture. You can say, hey, if God's going to forgive me and God loves me and, you know, I can just kind of do what I want and there's freedom. And so I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to live autonomous and I'm going to imitate the culture. I'm going to take my social cues from the culture around me. When it comes to my belief system, I don't have a biblical worldview necessarily. I have a cultural uh, worldview and I'm just kind of basing my life on my feelings and what I want to do. And I'm going to imitate what's going on around me. So you can isolate, you can imitate, or you can do what Jesus did. You can, option three, infiltrate the culture with the gospel message. That we're not going to stay far away. Uh, we're not going to imitate and do what the culture is doing. But we are going to go in. We're going to go out to the highways and hedges and compel them to come in. We're going to ask people to show up to the table. We're going to expand the table and bring more people in so they can encounter the love and the mercy and the grace of Jesus. If Jesus could call out and reach Matthew, then certainly he can call out and reach any one of us. His grace is available. And so today... We have to consider, how can I infiltrate the gospel? How can I infiltrate the school system with the gospel? How can I infiltrate uh, my family with the gospel? How can I speak the truth in love? Now, I want to close today by reading a couple of verses from Titus, and we'll be done. And uh, I want you to really listen into these verses. It says this in Titus chapter 3, verse number 3. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish. How many of you have ever made a foolish decision? Disobedient. Anybody ever disobey? Deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures. I'm going to stop asking for hand raising now. Uh, living in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But after that, aren't you thankful for the after that? But after that, the kindness and the love of God, our Savior toward man, appeared. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done. But according to his mercy, he saves us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. Please hear me today. If you don't know for sure that if you were to die today where you would spend eternity, just know this. It is not by works of righteousness that we can be saved. It's not by religious deeds or religious behavior or trying to measure up and be the best possible version of yourself. The only way that you can be saved is by the grace and the mercy of God. Salvation is not something that we achieve. Salvation is something that we simply open up our hands and heart and we receive. And the good news is this. The Bible says in Romans chapter 10, verse 13, whosoever, even Matthew, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that's a promise that we can claim today. And if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, I believe that today can be the day of salvation for you. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes today.